This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Sang coming up, Subversity. Stay tuned. Uh, Peter Donhue. Hi. Hi. You're on the air. Thank you. Oh, great. Great. Uh, I understand you're working, uh, you're an economist and you've been looking at UC financial statements. And um, we had you on uh, last September uh, in an earlier uh, discussion of this. Uh, but now you have some new data. Yes, Dan. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I'm an economist. I work with a variety of unions and community organizations looking at the overall financial condition of businesses and public universities, uh, among other things, governments. Um, and what I've been working with at UC has been the Coalition of University Employees uh, for about 10 years now. Um, what I've been doing is looking at the university's overall financial condition and resources going back to roughly 1989. And so with that perspective, we sort of been tracking it on a regular basis because it's continually a discussion both with the union and bargaining, but also with, as we know, the larger university community. And what we've done most recently has been reviewed their latest numbers, the university's latest officially audited statements, and came up with some definite findings, which frankly really supported our previous conclusions that UC is in fairly strong financial condition and has substantial resources, far different than the California State University system, the community colleges, or pretty much any government, including the state of California. Wow. So does it still have hidden, uh, like billions of uh, hidden assets that it could actually use? Well, I'll tell you, I think, Dan, that the answer is the answer is simply yes, but I think I want to qualify one thing, which is hidden. It's not really hidden. It just It's more a case that what the university represents to its lenders, to its creditors, to bond-ready agencies is what it really refers to as its audited financial statements, its overall financial condition. And what those statements show in a word is the UUC is very, very strong. By comparison, what they tell, in this case, not through audited financial statements or their fiduciaries, but rather through their public relations people, I guess that makes Vice Chancellor Schwartz, who is the head of the PR operation for the university, the chief chirp, uh, is they tell people something entirely different. So what we've done is we've taken the view is that we have an employment relationship with the university, that the university is a business partner, and as a consequence, we should look at it like businessmen or bankers would look at it. And what we found in this case is that the university is, as they've sworn to the other business people and bankers and bonder agencies, an exceptionally strong financial position. Wow. So um, what's it, why is it not uh, using that money to avoid layoffs and, um, you know, pay cuts and stuff? Well, it's an interesting question. I think if you, it's hard to get a direct answer. They claim when they talk to the employees or students or parents or other folks who depend upon UC for its core mission of teaching, research, and public service, is they pretend as if somehow there is no money and the only money that they have is that which would they get from the state. Um, that plainly just isn't true. How much do they get from the state now? Only about 13% of the university's operating budget comes from the state of California. By contrast, the California state system depends upon the state for 85 to 87% of their budget. So when the state has financial problems, CSU really feels it. For UC, in this particular case, we're talking about changes in resources simply from the state side that impact less than 2% of their overall revenues. By comparison, UC's operating revenues, that's the work, that's the 
the money that UC has earned as a result of employees' work, um, grew last year by $629 million. And is that mainly from uh, federal funding or no? No, that mainly comes from, a, well, comes from a variety of sources, but one of the places that most people don't seem to realize except when they wind up having to pay their bills is the university housing system, its dining system, but especially its parking system are extraordinarily profitable. They typically, in a typical year, literally take in half, twice as much money as they actually have to pay for operating expenses, including whatever debt service they pay on parking structures or facilities. I know um, once uh, I was put on a committee to uh, uh, interview uh, potential cops on campus, and <laughs> and the money they said uh, came from, uh, and we had enough to hire three cops, and that came from that money came from parking fines. Well, I think there's a usual, a simple confusion here that, they, that, frankly, I think the university counts on when talking to non-finance people, which is that universities, no different than governments or other entities, have to report following what are called generally accepting accounting principles. And under generally accepted accounting principles, the, the notion is provide information that would be necessary for anybody to understand their finance and resources. One of the big issues that folks would want to know, and you think about this if they're a lender or a creditor, is will they be able to pay? Can they pay? And the distinction usually comes down to simply one category, whether the funds are restricted or unrestricted. Now, what restricted funds means is that some outside entity, under a contract or a grant or a law simply says these dollars should only be used for this purpose and nothing else. And if they, you, you violate that, then they can go, go to court and sue you to recover the funds. What we're talking about is that portion of the university resources, which according to last year, they reported, and we think very modestly, $3.5 billion in unrestricted resources, which under generally accepted accounting principles are available for any, accepted, any legal purpose the university might choose. What they seem to be telling the public is we already have other plans. Now, we know partly it's the old tradition at UC, which is that the concrete never sets at UC. No matter how much of a financial crisis they're having, no matter how much it has to affect students in the classroom, raising tuition and fees, how it puts employees on the street, causes services not to be provided to the public, nonetheless, the university continues to pour concrete. So I think in that respect, that's one explanation. I think the other thing which has happened is they've accumulated the tremendous amount of resources um, uh, which are available for any, any legal purpose they choose. And, and that has reflected in what are called the unrestricted net asset. That is the bottom line. The bottom line are the resources which are available after all assets are counted, all liabilities are counted, and what's left over along the way. You see, it's been piling those up so much to the extent that last year, when the fiscal year ended, the university's bond rating actually went up. At a time when the state of California's bond rating has moved to junk, when a lot of other public entities are struggling to be able to borrow any money at all, UC's bond rating actually improved. And that reflects, I think, is the fact that it's a really abundant bottom line. It went to triple A, right? No, they're up to where they went to was double A1 and double and double A. Double A. Okay. From Moody's and AA1. And I'll just point that out, which is there are very, very few publicly supported universities, much less even public governments, which have bond ratings better than that. In fact, there's only a real few dozen who actually have AAA ratings. So this is an extremely good rating and especially important because at the same time they were doing that and taking credit for it and giving people bonuses for it in the process, they were telling students, faculty, staff, employees, the public, 
that somehow there were any major crisis hemorrhaging. In this respect, it does represent a really significant change based on our review of the data going back to the early late to the early 90s. That every time the universities had a fiscal crisis back in the early 90s, when employees were actually actually had pay cuts, back in the beginning of this decade, what we found instead was the university made money each year in the in the millions of dollars. Your your point about um, construction brings to mind the. Uh the saying that UCI actually stands for under construction indefinitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's what some of the students say. And um, the the other point is that the university, of course, would say that these, even though they are not un- they're not restricted, these funds are committed. Well, I think that that, that's, that certainly is their story. And I guess the question we've always asked, which is that if their priorities are such that they can at the same time raise tuition and fees by 32% on students in one shot, this is after a 277% increase in tuition and fees since 1990, yeah. then we have to wonder exactly what their mission is. Partly, when you consider the core mission, as they describe it, as being teaching, research, and public service, uh, we don't quite understand how if operating revenues are going up by 600 $29 million in a single year, and they have $3.5 billion in unrestricted reserves, which, by the way, is more than four times the size of the alleged cuts coming that came from the state. We don't quite understand why they can't continue to, make this, make, continue to meet the requirements of their mission. Or put it differently, it seems as though UC is changing its mission. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about what that's about. Privatization. That certainly has been an argument that people have been have been making, and in some respects, that I always used to say, because I used to teach university, in fact, at UC Berkeley, um, universities are trendy, but they lag on the trend. It's almost like Reaganism has come to UC twenty years late. I, you know, compare this to University of Michigan, which is a great research university, but it depends on state funding very little now. This is true. UC is remarkable in that respect. If you look at the institutions they identify as their peers, the peers that they choose when they decide to determine how much administrators should be paid, you discover that UC is in a whole other league. Give you an idea. If you simply use their most narrow definitions of reserves that they report in the audited statements, UC has a 17.5% reserve. Now, that is basically triple at least what most of the comparable institutions have for reserves. Moreover, 17.5% is past the high end of what is recommended for public entities to have as reasonable reserves through the Government Finance Office Association, who recommend reserves of 5% to 15%. We're above the top of the scale at 17.5%, and at the same time can't seem to be able to maintain services or keep the employees who perform those services working. How much is that in dollars? Seventeen point five percent. Oh, it's three and a half billion dollars. Wow, but uh, is that does that include like uh, you know the value of the lands, or, or is that just actual um, yeah, cash assets? Well, oh, here's, what do you think? Here's yeah. what it includes. It includes assets, um, including things like cash, barren yeah. along the way. It also includes, but it includes, for example, land and the construction, but only at the original cost. So if they acquired a piece of property at UC Berkeley, with now UC Berkeley, in 1873 for $5, it's carried on the books at what's called original historical cost. At the same time, there's no projection of any future income growth or any appreciation of assets. On the liability side, nonetheless, the university includes all of its liability, even non-current liabilities, which means not payable within the next year. And interestingly enough, they include liabilities for 
obligations, as they call them, like retiree health benefits for employees, which the university insists are not, they're not compelled to pay, includes them for the next 30 years. So that $3.5 billion reflects, on one hand, only current, current resources on hand, but includes, includes liabilities that go out for three decades. $3.5 billion understates the university's position since, on one hand, we cover 30 years of liability, but we only cover current year's assets and, and asset values. I think that's one of the reasons why when the bond rate agencies look at UC, they think UC is even stronger than what they're reporting in their books. But, you know, if it includes land, they can't convert that right away, right? So, no, I think yeah. we're keeping in mind that we're not, we're not including land in terms of our unrestricted net assets because we're, what we're doing is including land at its 1877 value, going back to my example. We're not talking about the fact that they could cash out this real estate along the way. We're simply pointing out that they're undervaluing their real estate. They're following a general practice, but as we all know, it'd be very hard for anybody not to make money in California real estate, even now, if they pay no taxes and then basically only value the land at the, at the lowest possible value, its original value. Do you think with this uh, news about the fact that they have all these, all this, uh, all this asset, uh, it would uh, prevent the legislature from actually giving more money to UC? Well, I think that we have two issues here. First off is one of the principal obstacles I think UC has in getting additional funding from the state is the fact that plainly UC is using its resources in entirely different directions than what entitled it its original constitutional status. The university is an extraordinarily profitable business. To give you an example, as I said, operating revenues, which come not from the state but come from employees' own efforts, went up last year at $629 million. They spent, at the same time, $787 million on new construction last year. At the same time, they're telling us they can't afford to spend money on teaching, on research and public service because of $800 million in budget cuts. If you simply deferred the construction one year, you would have covered the entire cost. So I think in that respect, when we look at these kind of issues, what we're seeing is, let's say, let's say a the university is going in a different direction than what I think a lot of people, both in the university community and outside, see as its principal mission. Secondly, I think we have another issue, which is plainly UC is only one, and it's not really one of the highest priorities in Sacramento because much of the state itself, state counties, cities, school districts, as well as the CSU system or community colleges, for example, are suffering even more. Part of our difficulty, I think, and I think everybody's recognizing this more and more now, has been that California's tax structure simply doesn't reflect the nature of California's economy. Mm. Simple yeah. example. Back in 1790, when the United States began, property taxes, real property taxes, taxes on land and buildings, were the predominant form of wealth, or were the source of revenues because they were the predominant form of wealth. Probably about 97% of all wealth in 1790 was in the form of land and improvements. Right now, only about 3% of all wealth in the United States at most is in land and improvements. Nonetheless, we continue to put the burden on retirees who own their own homes, on folks who are trying to make payments along the way. One of the issues that you see could take a real leadership role in this would be to truly try to push and support efforts to establish a more reasonable basis of financing public services generally so that the burden doesn't continually fall on those folks who are homeowners, because as we know, corporations quite often benefit the most from this, but usually can avoid paying much of any appreciation in property taxes. There are alternatives. They're just not being discussed. 
you would think that the University of California, being a preeminent research institution in the United States in the world, they would be taking leadership role. Instead, what we see instead is them instead fighting over a smaller piece of dollars at a time when really there are very few resources and very little sympathy in Sacramento. And the sympathy is, uh, you know, is not there because they perceive uh, it's top-heavy with executive salaries. And yet, um, I was at a session with the chancellor, uh, where the chancellor conf- was confronted by students a week and a half ago, and he said that even if he took another cut in pay, it would just amount to one percent of what they spend. Well, his management team, yeah. I think that on one level he's probably correct, which is to say that the amount of compensation which you see is abundant, they claim driven by peers' compensation other places, won't solve the university's financial crises as they portray it along the way. On the other hand, it does go a long way towards sabotaging efforts to, to basically correct this issue. Because when you see employees being laid off, when you see employees taking pay cuts, when you see students finding their tuition fees going up, classes being reduced in number, and at the same time, you're increasing the pay for executives along the way, it's hard to expect people to basically respond to your concerns in good faith. And I think that certainly has been my impression from talking with folks from around the system and around the state. You see he's doing a very poor job of representing himself as doing acting in the public interest. Now, Drake, uh, you know, says he has been in the UC system 38 years. So in two more years he could retire wouldn't he be able to retire at 100% of his salary and his pension? You know, I don't really know because part of our difficulty with looking at UC is that um, when you look at executives, everybody, they like to compare their basic wage package, but they you know, have been revealed by newspapers, particularly the San Francisco Chronicle over the last 10 years, of special side deals, which oh, yeah. along the way. So it's hard to make comparisons. It's also hard to understand how much of these resources um, are, in fact, those which come from restricted funds and versus unrestricted funds. Uh, so I think in that regard, what their retirement benefits might be is going to depend a lot on the package that they have individually. All we know is that they're substantially better than those which regular employees get. We certainly know that they get retiree health benefits, which many employees can never expect to receive because they'll never vest. Oh, I see. Yeah. And uh, I just heard from a lecturer who was uh, laid off, and he lived in University Hills, which is university property, and he was told he had to, he would lose his house if he, uh, unless he took the pension. And, oh, really? And if he didn't take the pension but took a lump sum, he would also lose his house. Well, this is a good example of something which I think has been lost in this discussion, which is that typically for a publicly supported institution like you see, you have to be careful when you make decisions, whether when you face alleged fiscal crises, whether the policies that you enact, the practices you engage in, are actually not cutting costs or whether they're simply just shifting costs. I see. And I think that what's happened in UC's case is they're operating like a corporation which, when business slows down, lays workers off. Because in that case, what they're doing is cutting the corporation's cost, but they're simply shifting the cost onto the employee. Or, for example, if they have no health insurance, they're going to wind up going to the county and have to get their health care through, through the county funding or through county hospitals along the way. I don't think anyone has really understood how UC has really conducted itself as if it were a private corporation. I think that's what's going on. I think when it comes to employees in situations like that, what could be worse than that? Because I've heard the same story elsewhere. Employees living in university housing, losing their 
becoming disqualified to continue living in their housing, too. Talk about a double whammy. Yeah, and it's just uh, catch-22. So, of course, he's going to take the pension because he doesn't want to lose the house. Right. I think that's a real practical problem. We've seen other people go through this. At the same time, we find that when folks move from job to job at UC, from location to location in the administration, they'll actually help them buy a house. So right. Congress that you would put people who are actually working or employees who are actually producing results on the street at the same time you're subsidizing executives who already make maybe 10 times as much money helping them get a cheaper loan. Yeah, there was a case of an administrator who was in UC office of the president and he moved down to Irvine and he, you know, he was supposedly, you know, retired from up there and then he got this big job down here. Yeah, I think it's very thoughtful how they've been sort of careless about that process. Uh, it's interesting when we're in bargaining with the university, and currently the Coalition of University Employees is in mediation with the university. The university continually claims it just doesn't have the information systems to know about these things. It can't provide information, in some cases information we've asked for for a decade. So it's kind of odd to find out that when these things get discovered, the university's first response is, well, we didn't realize that. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the information business, it seems rather in Congress that you can't even keep track of people's compensation. Yeah, of course they know about it, yeah. But uh, <laughs> how about, uh, you know, in the Q case, uh, you had uh, the Q had challenged the uh, layoff and cut pay cut plan but and by arguing that there were other assets that they could uh, uh, apply, uh, apply. And, uh, but the, the case got lost, and so now Q members have to go on uh, temporary layoff. I think what's happening right now is, is that it's a larger, longer process, and there are many components to it, what's going to actually come down. For example, in the mediation process, which is an effort led by a state appointed mediator to bring the parties closer together, um, that I anticipate will probably be followed not by a deal immediately, but rather instead by what's then another state-instigated process called fact-finding. Mm. We've learned in the past from fact-finding, which is one, that our characterization, well, let's put it this way, our characterization of the university's robust financial condition is something that fact-finders have agreed with us 100% all the way through. Oh, wow. Very confident we'll find the same conclusion from our fact-finding process this time. What's unfortunate is, in the process of doing this, the university feels compelled to conduct itself as if somehow it's, the sky is falling. Part of this, I think, is the university's effort to try to basically put pressure on legislators, since they don't have much affection up there, to put pressure on them by creating real hardships for ordinary working people and for students. I think that that's one of our difficulties, that the university is frankly using the pain of other people to try to enhance its position. And it's particularly grotesque since the university has the resources. I mean, free cash on hand more than four times what the cuts were this past year, and the decision was made, no, we'll make the cuts instead. Of course, they, it's a PR thing, right? They want to show that the UC system is suffering, is ordering uh, layoffs and uh, pay cuts and furloughs, just like the Cal State system. Right, and I think it's very—it's a very familiar scheme, which is that in p public employment, for example, when cities want to raise more money, what they do is they place people called the parks game, which is take a very popular service or facility, close it or threaten to close it. The governor's done this, of course, with the state of California, and basically yeah. cause try to rally people to fund those entities which then allows them to continue funding things that they could never sell as popular programs or, or programs which serve the broadest range of people. I think UC is playing the parks game. I also think something else, which is the 
president comes to the University of Texas, my alma mater, I got my doctorate. And at UC, UC has an extraordinarily well, is, UT is a very wealthy institution. It shares at Texas A&M something called the Permanent University Fund, which is basically the revenue that Texas and Texas A&M get from leasing oil land. As a consequence, their relationship to the, to the state in the legislature is very different because they don't rely nearly as much on state funding, and instead they have those resources to create allies and put pressure on legislators. I think the president has come from that particular system, which, of course, is relentlessly non-union, which does an extraordinarily bad job of recruiting minority students in particular, and I think he's attempting to bring that, back, that, bring that, that kind of model to UC. UC already has the resources. Apparently what he was brought in was to implement that particular program. Wasn't it U of Texas, not Texas A&M? He was at Texas, but Texas and Texas A&M share what's called the PUF Fund, the Permanent University Fund. An interesting process because I'll tell you a little story. A hundred years ago when the the Texas University systems were created, uh, they were told they could fund themselves by having grazing land rents. They could collect the rents off state-owned grazing land. And the typical price is five cents an acre because a lot of it was pretty sparse. Uh, what then happened in the 1920 was, of course, oil was discovered under that land. And so UC, University of Texas and Texas A&M went from being schools which were basically living but whatever cash they generated off of leasing grazing land to suddenly being the biggest leaseholders of oil lands in the state of Texas. Uh, this has put them in a very different position. UC itself is basically doing something different. They instead have massive operating revenues and resources which they generate through employees' own efforts. Again, probably why they wanted to pursue even further their corporate model. Uh, Professor Lakoff from Berkeley was down here the other day, and he's been pushing his initiative idea of changing the, a sentence uh, to, to say that the budget can be approved by a majority vote in the legislature. And also other speakers, including uh, State Senator Hancock, was also speaking, and she's been pushing this idea of uh, this oil revenue, uh, a fee, right, a fee on uh, oil revenue in the state. Do you think that would go some way to helping resolve some of this budget well, crisis? I think that the, that Professor Lakoff's proposal is he's basically giving voice to what a lot of people know, both in and outside of Sacramento, which is that the changes that were enacted to make it impossible to enact a budget without a two-thirds majority allowing a small minority to hold the state hostage till they get what they want, changing that would be an enormous thing. All that would do is basically bring you back to what happens in every other jurisdiction, which is the majority votes and the majority rules. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the best of the fairest, but plainly it's the way we do things in the United States. This particular process of allowing a minority, which apparently can't seem to grow, it only seems to shrink along the way to block the process, has become a major, major problem. So I agree with the professor. He, that's where we ought to go with that. As far as the question of revenues, I think we have to look at a wide range of revenues, and I'll toss out an idea which I don't have my clients endorsing, but I'll toss it out here. One of the problems that we have, as I said earlier, is we have tax structure which reflects uh, an economy, a society of 100 or 200 years ago when land was the predominant form of wealth. The predominant form of wealth right now is not land. But more importantly, a huge proportion of wealth, particularly in California, is what are called intangible assets. That is to say, stocks, bonds, insurance policies, patents, goodwill, all things which corporations report in their balance sheet, which are real wealth, but are don't ever get brushed when it comes to basically taxation by comparison to someone owning a small house 
I don't know, in Orange County, they were, they're, why they're paying their property taxes, particularly if they bought it since 1979. It seems like we ought to be looking at the nature of California's economy, how it's changed. We ought to be looking at alternatives that don't put the burden increasingly on the smaller sources of wealth, particularly in places like the Central Valley and in agriculture, which are plainly substantially overtaxed by comparison to even a company that might operate in San Francisco that might have $11 billion in assets but pays no taxes at all. So what I've been actually promoting with other folks is looking at a wider range of taxation and bringing back something called the intangible property tax, allowing to exempt, for example, uh, people who have pensions, who have retirement savings of different kinds, but basically shift the burden increasingly on where the real economy is going in California as opposed to where it was 200 years ago or 100 years ago. It's, a, it's also a, a service economy, right? Oh, oh, would you call that a service yeah, economy? Certainly, yeah. I think that's true. But I think even that focusing on just services generally misses the point that property taxation was based on the principle, which has been the taxation principle across the country, that those who benefit the most should pay the most. What's happened is, is that reflects now what was how that distribution of benefits and costs were made 100 or 200 years ago. We need to basically use that same principle to rejigger it to reflect the fact there's substantial forms of wealth, not just extending sales taxes to, for example, services. Well, the Supreme Court just reaffirmed that corporations are people, uh, in, the, in this case about uh, financing of uh, um, campaigns and stuff. So if, if corporations are, are actually people, then they should be taxed much more. Well, you, you, I think that's, that's one of the interesting things about, about limited liability and the extension of the personhood to corporations is that apparently only extends to certain things, not others. And we certainly know, for example, that the people in charge of these companies rarely ever become held responsible for the consequences of their actions where they direct this other larger legal person that doesn't exist except on a piece of paper as a result of state law. Right. The only corporations exist because state and federal law allow them to act as if they are a person. How how do you see this uh, whole thing with, uh, I know the students have been asking for more transparency about what actually goes into the money that they're going to be charged extra in, in uh, fees. Uh, what actually what actually is the cost of uh, teaching uh, or student fees? Where does it go to? Uh, well, I think there's been a lot of good work done on that. Professor Charles Schwartz, you know, emeritus professor of physics at UC Berkeley has, has been fairly diligent, as they have other people along the way. What we know is that, generally speaking, that undergraduate education at UC costs a whole lot less than graduate education does or professional schools. The university draws the conclusion which we should charge the professional schools and graduate students more. But I think one of the things we do, do, do know from the numbers that have been provided is that undergraduate costs are much, much lower than they have been. Now, the question is, where do tuition and fees go along the way? Those are operating revenues because they come from the efforts of faculty, from staff, from lecturers, whoever else it might be, who provide the educational services, those are unrestricted resources. That is to say they can be used for any legal purpose the university chooses. And apparently the university is using them for other things. Maybe that's $787 million in new construction last year. What do you, can you, I, I didn't understand that. Uh. Well, what I'm saying is that when you generate resources from your operating revenues, from your own efforts, those are, in accounting terms, unrestricted. They're available for any purpose they would choose. There's no condition that simply says that tuition and fees that are raised uh, at the expense of students and their families have to go to provide undergraduate education. Oh, it's, okay. the, it's the price. It's not really the cost. And I think the point is that the cost is substantially less than the price. And I think in that regard, those that net or the difference 
the rake-off is unrestricted, and the university can use it for what it will, and it does. So what's going to prevent that in the future? I mean, it's, it's, I think that one of the things we really need to look at more importantly is consider exactly who and how decisions are made at UC. Because as a publicly supported institution, there are, it's, it's autonomous because it has a place in the state constitution. But at the same time, there seems to be no real concerted effort to sort of stick to the principal mission, but rather to expand itself along the way. I think that one of the things we need to have is probably, first off, some legislative intention to the actual use of resources at UC and find out whether or not, not just whether state resources, which are relatively a small share, 13% of revenues, um, whether those resources, those as well as operating revenues, are actually going to the purposes that gave UC its tax-exempt, publicly-supported constitutional status in the first place. That would be a start. I think the second thing is that it's probably worth, and again, I'm tossing out an idea that my colleague, my clients may not particularly agree with, is that it might be considered, maybe it would be time to consider we choose regions in a different fashion rather than having the governor appoint all the regions. Maybe you need to consider as a state like Illinois where regions are elected along the way, but where people have some accountability Right now, and you can I bet you've been to those regent meetings. Uh, I'm always astonished by when yeah. people get up for public comment. There are regents who will literally get up and walk away. There are regents who will sit in their chair, turn around and face away from folks along the way. I don't think that's appropriate behavior. Elected officials couldn't afford to, to conduct themselves that way, but plainly wealthy people, friends of the governor, apparently can do whatever they want. And I think that's a problem because even if you think, they ought to be the people making decisions. We think that they probably ought to listen to employees, to students, and to other members of the public, and apparently that they have a deaf ear to that. I think I did once uh, sit next to Charlie Schwartz in the audience at a regents meeting, and I think he's treated like a non-person there. Right. I think that's really true. They're very knowledgeable people. Look, look at what, what the University of California does, and look at who the people who do this work is. And Charlie has just become an embarrassment to the university because he's simply taken their own numbers and shown them up for, for giving very different conclusions, different conclusions than what the university spends them to. He's, he's not the only one. Yeah, his website is universityprobe.com, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah, one of his many websites. Yeah. Before I, for, before I forget, I want to mention, Dan, that... Um, our work, which is about to be coming up, is going to be available very, very shortly. It's called UC's Hidden Wealth Updated. It will be available online. You can go through qunion.org to find it. It will be available in a DVD format. It will be done as a video. It will also be done available in hard copy. So what we've discovered is that based on our conversations around the system, a lot of people have an interest in, in looking at this information and seeing it, including people in Sacramento. We really urge people to pursue this because it will be out very shortly. We hope to have it out by the time we talk today, but it's not quite done. It's a DVD. It's a movie. And- as well, yes. We discovered that the last time, that DVDs worked very well. What we did was originally put together a DVD the first time we did the report for purposes of lunchtime meetings of employees. It was so popular we decided for what it cost to produce a DVD and distribute it that we should go ahead and make it available to to people in the bargaining unit and other folks who are interested. So it's not going to be, the DVD's not going to be online or what? No, the DVD, I think what you're going to find is you're going to find the links will be available there. Links to get the DVD. Yes, uh, and, and all, the report yeah. will be there. Yeah, so okay. The DVD will will be actually will be on the site as well too. Oh, oh okay. Uh, so uh, we will link to that, of course. Uh, well, thank you very much, Peter, uh, for coming back on the show. Thank and you, much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that was, uh, Peter Donahue, uh, that was Peter Donahue, economist, who has been looking at the intricate uh, financial statements.
and making them clearer, maybe.、Um, trying to say that there is actually hidden assets, billions worth, that the UC, even though it says it's committed,、uh, could have used for other purposes,、um, but is not. So the dilemma continues. There is money, but the UC says it's committed. So this is Dan Zhang with subversity.